0: Good to see you. Glad that you're here today. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where our text is. If you've been here in weeks past, you know that we're in a series. I've entitled it Great New Testament Text. We're looking at probably quite familiar verses to most of us here. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is certainly one of them. I think sometimes people think that preachers only preach on sin. And that's not the case. I certainly wouldn't want to be identified that way because we like to extol the glories of our Savior. We like to marvel at the wonderful work of sanctification. We like to think and speak about the glories of heaven and fulfillment of prophecy. There's a myriad number of topics, but from time to time, we preach on sin. You've heard me say, sin takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, costs you more than you want to pay. That's true. All of us are upfront and personal with sin in our lives. It's something that all of us are familiar with. But God has given us a promise in this verse about sin and how we can have victory over sin. I've entitled my message, God's Promise Concerning Temptation. Certainly, one of the keys to the successful Christian life, which I hope we would all aspire to, one of the keys to the successful Christian life is understanding and then dwelling on or learning and then hiding God's word in our heart. It is one of the secrets to success in the Christian life. We have to understand, and then we have to hide it in our heart. We have to know what the Word says and then be able to recall it. The Bible says all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is inspired. We get that. I'm sure all of us believe that. All Scripture is inspired and profitable. But some verses are particularly concise Maybe we would say particularly helpful in capturing a promise that God has given to us as believers to claim. These passages become maybe pivotal turning points at critical junctures in our life, in our walk with the Lord. They're important for us to learn them, to memorize them, so we can Pull them out at a point. And this is one of those verses. Let's say this verse together. Let's repeat it. Let's say the reference before and after. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10.13. What a great verse. It's a verse that if you don't have memorized, that you should, and you should rehearse it because you can call it to memory when you're tempted. And that's what we're talking about here today. God's promise concerning temptation. Let's break this verse down so we can understand it better. First of all, I'm saying let's look at the definition of temptation. The definition of temptation. Whenever we look at a verse like we're doing in this series, we want to understand it in its context, not out of context. That's eisegesis. We want to do exegesis, understanding it in its context. You probably maybe have glanced through these verses already this morning, maybe not, but you're maybe familiar with where they are. Understanding the context here is helpful for understanding this verse. In the earlier verses of this chapter, Paul is reminding the Corinthians, that's who he's writing to, about the Israelites' journey, about the Israelites' experience. As God delivered them from Egypt, they failed multiple times. They fell into idolatry, verse 7. They fell into immorality, verse 8. They fell into negativity towards God and their leaders, in verse 10. He's reminding them about their failures and how God had to chastise them repeatedly because they kept falling into sin. The Corinthians needed to hear the message of this verse and in this whole chapter because look at verse 12, preceding the verse that we just read and quoted. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest they fall. There was a mentality in the church at Corinth that, hey, I'm in Christ, I'm saved. (laughs) Why worry about anything? They had a laissez-faire towards their sin. That's why Paul had to deal with the multiple problems that they had in the church. Immorality and lawsuits and every chapter deals with a different problem because they took such a casual attitude towards their sin. And Paul is saying, hey, you think you're standing in Christ, But be careful lest you fall. You're going to fall because you take such a casual attitude towards sin. Remember what God chastened and chastised the Israelites because they had that attitude. Don't take that attitude. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, God's made provision. God has provisioned for you a a way that you don't have to fall into sin. I don't know if you believe that. I hope that you do. But with the word of God in our lap and the Holy Spirit in our heart and in an attitude that uh, God can deliver me, we can live above sin. And I'm not talking about an apartment above a bar. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay, we can live above the control of sin. We don't have to be governed by it. Temptations are common. We get that. All of us are tempted temptations are common but god has provided his children a way of escape now it's important we're talking about the definition of temptation it's important for us to understand what the word temptation really means in the new testament and i'm not not trying to surprise you but the word temptation is really amoral one of the commentators pointed that out because of its usage it's important for us to distinguish the usage of the word temptation in the New Testament. It does not always mean enticement to sin. The word. The context would, but the word does not. In first Corinthians ten thirteen, the Greek word here is perosmos, perosmos. And it's used several times in the New Testament. The same word is used in John chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Look how Jesus uses it in this verse. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and he saw a great multitude coming towards him. And he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him. That's the same Greek word that's translated temptation earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. To test Philip. What does it go on to say? To test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew that he was going to feed this crowd. He was going to do it in a miraculous way. But he wanted to see how Philip would respond. If Philip would say, God, or Lord, you know, you can provide for them. Or, man, I don't think we got enough money to provide for all these. He was testing Philip. The word perosmos can mean test, temptation, examine, in James chapter 1, it says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. There it is. The next verse goes on to say, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Then down in verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation. It's the same word used three different ways, test, trials, temptations. You get that? It's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 where Paul says, examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. Examine yourself. So the word can be translated many different ways. It's the context that tells us how it's being used. Test, trials, examine. We get it. Tests and exams are a part of life. God uses tests and exams in our Christian experience to reveal things. We take academic tests to see how well we know a particular subject. We take physical tests to see what our strength is, to prove our strength. We have moral tests that God brings to us that reveal our character, we would say. There are all kinds of tests physical, academic, and moral, spiritual, we would say, and they all reveal things about us. God's purpose in testing us is never to make us fall. It's never to make us fail or fall, but to reveal our weakness so that we might draw close to him. So get it. God tests us. God tries us. God examines us, but he never puts a test out there so we will fall into sin. Because God can't be tempted with evil. The Bible says, neither does he tempt any man. God doesn't test us to get us to sin. He tests us so we know that we need him and that we will draw close to him. So obviously there's a difference when the word is used in the context that God is using it and when Satan is using it. God never tests us so we will fail and fall and sin, but Satan certainly does. When Satan tempts someone, it is with the intention of getting them to fall into sin. And the classic example of that, you well know, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 I'll read it to you. It's the story of Christ just before he begins his public ministry of being led out into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days. We call that a supernatural fast. Don't try and do it at home. Okay. He does a supernatural fast for 40 days. And then Satan comes to him when he's weak, when he's at his very low point. Satan comes to him and the Bible says he tempts him. It says... Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, there's the word, by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry, I guess so. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the Son of God, he knew he was, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. You've heard it explained, really the stones in that part of the world and maybe Central Michigan where we picked up rock, they look like loaves of bread. They look like little round loaves of bread. And when you're really hungry, everything looks like food. I always say that. When you're fasting, everything looks good to you. Everything smells good. You just want to imbibe it. It doesn't even have to taste good. It just is good. Many of you know I fast. When Tuesday lunch, I break the fast, I'm ready to eat something. I'm ready to eat something seriously. Uh, I heard about the guy who His downfall was donuts. He just loved donuts. He'd often pick one up on the way into work. But he was trying to quit. He was getting heavier and heavier. So he began to pray about it. And he said, God, if if you want me to have a donut this morning, I've done several days without a donut. If you want me to have a donut this morning, may there be one empty parking spot in front of Dunkin' Donuts. Just one. If there isn't a parking spot open, I know it's not your will for me to have a donut. So after he circled around Dunkin' Donuts seven times, one opened up. (laughs) That's called making provision for the flesh. Jesus was hungry. Satan came to him and tempted him. He tempted him to get him to sin. So we could say this. This is the way I'm summarizing. We could say God tests with the intention of strengthening us. God tests us with the intention of strengthening us, so we'll run to him. Satan tempts us with the intention of destroying us. There's a big difference in the motive, the intention, and who lays out the test or the temptation. The context will reveal the meaning of the word. I think it's important for us to understand the word, the definition of temptation. It's determined by the context because it's used in different ways. Test trial, examine, tempt, etc. Let's look at the verse again, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you. It's the idea that sneaks up behind you and you're caught in it. You're unaware. You're trapped. It ambushes you. And what does he say? No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able, but with the temptation also make a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. Second, the limitations of temptation. You see it right here in the verse. God has set parameters, just as He says to the ocean, here too and no farther. Uh, God has set limitations on temptation to His people. No Christian can ever say, according to this verse and others, no Christian can ever say that a particular sinful temptation was irresistible. It was overwhelming. I was overpowered by it. There is no way that a man could have resisted that temptation. You can't say that according to the Bible. You can't. That would be dishonest. Because God says, no temptation has overtaken a man, but such as is common to man. No one will ever face a superhuman extraordinary temptation of which they have to succumb to. God assures us of that. Now, you may have tried to float that excuse, but God doesn't buy it. And if you're honest with yourself, you know it's not true. Other believers have faced similar situations. Maybe not the exact same circumstances, but the same temptations. Other believers have faced similar temptations and tests and have not succumbed to them and we don't have to acquiesce to those temptations either because others have overcome them with God's help, by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit's enablement and we can as well. Satan's temptations fall into three, I guess I would say three broad categories. The Bible tells us that. They're delineated in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. God tells us they kind of fall into those three general categories. These lures, you could maybe call them that. These lures that Satan throws into the waters that we're swimming in. These lures correspond precisely, and we'll see in scripture, that how Satan tempted Eve and got her to fall, the same three he used against Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ was victorious over it. These three general guidelines or broad categories of sin. Genesis chapter 3 is the story of Satan tempting Eve, Genesis chapter 3, Eve noted that the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Here, this beautiful garden, they could eat from all the fruit-bearing trees. God had one rule for them, don't eat, at least for the time being, now maybe in the future they would be allowed to eat from that, but one test, one test, one trial, don't eat from this tree. That was the only command that God gave them, only rule in the garden what does the Bible say? Eve noticed that the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil was good for food. It activated her what? Lust of the flesh. It activated that lust of the flesh that every man and woman battles in this life. Satan also tempted Jesus who was hungry from fasting in the wilderness. We quoted that a a moment ago. To turn the stones into bread, Matthew chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He tempted Jesus with the lust of the flesh. He was very hungry. This would be good for you. Just say the word and those stones will become warm, tender loaves of bread, and you're hungry and you need it. You've been fasting. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes, the second broad category, is seen when Eve's observation that, what does it say in Genesis 3, 6? That the tree was pleasant for the eyes. I'm sure all the other trees looked good. Maybe this one looked spectacular or extraordinarily good. Maybe the fruit was, was almost dripping with uh, juice and lusciousness. But she noticed that it was pleasant to the eyes, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So Satan pulls out his second category of temptation, the lust of the eyes. He does the same thing with Jesus. Likewise, Satan sought to convince Jesus to cast himself from the pinnacle of the temple, probably the highest point in the city of Jerusalem, which was up on a hill, and cast himself down, knowing that the psalm said that the angels will pluck him up, lest his feet dash themselves against the stone. So Jesus could cast himself off the angels would keep him from being injured and all the crowd that's gathered there in Jerusalem would adore Jesus would recognize that he is spectacular in the lust of the eyes the idea that he would be adored and worship prematurely by the way he will be by all some point But this is Satan getting us to satisfy something that is ordained of God, but prematurely. And that's usually what temptation is. Uh, Outside the bounds of God's program, the crowd would have been electrified and would have worshiped him, which he will receive, we understand. Finally, Satan sought to destroy Eve and Jesus with the pride of life temptation. Satan points out to Eve, Again, in verse 6 of chapter 3, he points out to Eve that the fruit of the tree was desirable to make one wise. And that would fulfill that pride of life. Listen, you'll be wise. You'll be smarter. You'll be esteemed is the idea, we would say. And he comes to Jesus at his coming out of the fast and out of this period of temptation, and he promised our Lord that if he would bow down and worship Satan, he would bestow to Jesus the authority over all the nations of the world, Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Now, someday all the nations of the world will worship Jesus. But Satan was trying to get him to, and Satan was, is the ruler and prince and power there and the ruler of this world. He was trying to get him to satisfy it prematurely. So as we know, Eve succumbed to Satan's temptation, and Jesus was, resisted them and became victorious over those temptations. It's a case in point that we can as well. And he did it by quoting the Word of God. There are not many new weapons in Satan's armory. He doesn't, he's not adding new arrows to his quiver. Or putting new tools in his toolbox uh, to get us to fall. Why? Because the three that he has really work well against us. They've been working well for thousands of years. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. They're very effective. And by the way, being tempted is not sinful succumbing to the temptation is. Jesus was tempted, but he didn't sin. Matter of fact, the Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we are. You've heard me say, I don't even like to think that way. But he was tempted in all points like a man, but he didn't succumb to those temptations. Being tempted is not sinful. Dwelling on them, maybe we would say, or succumbing to them is sinful. And Jesus never did that. I took first John chapter 2 verse 16 and did something I kind of enjoy doing. I took the phrases and put them into a, a little outline. It helps me remember them. We'll put them up here on the screen. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is that desire to experience and we all have that desire, the desire to go places and see things and, and have all of it, you know, the desire to experience. But we have to remind ourselves we are not hedonist. A hedonist is someone who lives for pleasure and experience. So the lust of the flesh talks about the desire to experience all that this world has to offer, you know, the bucket list or whatever. But we're not hedonist. The second one. The lust of the eyes, that's a desire for ownership. We see something, we say, I want it. Just like Eve did in the garden. I want that fruit. I like that car. I would like to live in that house, etc., etc. The lust of the eyes is the desire for ownership. We see it. We want it. We want to accumulate. But guess what? We're not materialist either. We don't live for the things of this world. Now, we got to have some. And it's nothing wrong with having them, but we can't be owned by them. We're not materialists anymore, than we should be hedonists. The third one, the pride of life. That's the desire for worship, accolades, human praise, respect. The desire for people to say, oh, look at him, look at her. The desire for worship. But we're not narcissists. It's not all about us. It's about him. It's not what we have or what we own or what we've achieved. We're not narcissists. So you can take those three phrases and you can apply them really to life. And that's what Satan uses against us to tempt us to fall into sin. But we don't have to. Third and finally, the extraction from temptation. The extraction From temptation. Let's look at the verse again. What does it say? But God is faithful, and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your abilities. But with the temptation, make a way to escape so you'll be able to bear it. When I was a college student, before I was a Christian, and I was in engineering school, I had a couple of roommates and said, hey, for spring break, why don't we go to Fort Lauderdale? I'm not recommending that. That's why I put that phrase in there before I was a Christian. We decided to go to Fort Lauderdale. We drove uh, down there, and on our way, we stopped. We'd planned this. We stopped in Kentucky because one of the roommates had his grandparents that lived there. We stayed with them, and then we went to the Mammoth Caves, the Mammoth Cave National Park. We bought our tickets and went on the tour And we descended the stairs, some of them were carved in the rock, some of them were wood, and I kind of felt like they were a little bit rickety. And we descended all the way down to the floor of Mammoth Cave, which I looked at again here this past week as I was thinking about this. According to what it said on the website, it's the largest cave in the world because it goes on for many, many miles in many different directions. Most of it isn't accessible and maybe hasn't even been explored. So we came down the stairs and came to the very bottom of the cave, at least in that section, that they allowed us to do. And he was explaining stalactites, stalagmites, you know. Stalactites, remember, hang tight to the ceiling. Stalagmites might grow up. That's how we remember them. He explained that kind of stuff. And, And then he said this. He said, how many of you have ever experienced complete, utter darkness? I don't know if anybody raised their hand. He said, well, I'm going to give you an opportunity to experience because we're way below the surface of the earth. He says, in a moment, we're going to turn out the lights. And I already thought there were too few lights for my comfort, I'll tell you that. Coming down those stairs and being down there was dark city. He said, in a few moments, I'm going to turn out the lights and you won't be able to see your hand in front of your face. So he gave us a few moments to get mentally ready and then to cut the lights. Sure enough, you could do this, you couldn't see nothing. You know, it kind of changes your senses, your equilibrium or something. It, my other roommates were holding hands, they got so scared. <laughs> People began to whimper, or whatever. But he left the lights off long enough to make us, you know, know what it's like to have zero vision capability and to feel uncomfortable. In this environment. But before he shut the lights off, I'm gonna guess I wasn't the only one. But I looked around to see where those stairs were from where I was in case they didn't come back on. In case I needed to exit out of there, I wanted to know which direction to turn. It's always wise, I guess, to have an exit strategy in a situation that's uncomfortable or dangerous. It's always good to have an exit strategy, and God gives us an exit strategy in this verse. When we're in a position of temptation, that is why, by the way, in this auditorium, there are 20 doors out of this auditorium, 20 exit doors. It wasn't because we wanted everybody to leave in a hurry, it's because the fire code made us put 20 doors in according to the seating in the auditorium. And there's even more going out of the building. Why? Because fire safety has learned that the more doors there are and the more direction people can go and they don't get trampled if a fire ever happened or whatever. It's good to have an exit strategy and that's what we find in this verse. The extraction from temptation. God always provides a way of escape from temptation and that's why the middle and the last phrase of this verse are tied together the means of victory over temptation is not what we can do by ourselves all alone, but is bound up in what? The faithfulness of God. It isn't that you're gonna overcome the temptations that come into your life because you're such a steel-willed person. You're so disciplined. Now, obviously, that's helpful, Or you're so smart, you've looked down the road and you understand that sin takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, costs you more than you want to pay. You may understand that, but that isn't the victory over temptation in and by itself. It's linked inseparably to God. To God. The faithfulness of God. That's what he says here. But God is faithful. But in the Bible is a good and big word sometimes. But here's our temptation takes many down. But God is faithful. God always provides a way of escape. An escape route we could say or an exit strategy. A a way of deliverance. Yes we need willpower and Yes, we need to memorize scripture. We understand that. But then we need to run to God and ask him for strength and grace and the Holy Spirit's enablement. That's the answer. The answer is when we're tempted because we've memorized scripture and we can recall it and the Holy Spirit pushes it to the front of our mind, we say, that's not who I am. I'm a child of Christ now. That's not my nature anymore. We're reckoning who we are in Jesus Christ. So we recall scripture. And then just like in the book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah was standing before the king and the king says, you got a sad face. And nobody was able to appear before the king with a sad face. He got enough problems of his own without having other people around him with problems. He says, this is not because you're sick. This is a sad countenance. This is, this is something in your heart. And the Bible says that Nehemiah shot a quick prayer to the Lord. I picture it in my mind like pulling an arrow out of the quiver and saying, oh, God, help me. He caught me with my sadness. And he was sad because the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and nobody wanted to move back there as God had commanded them. So he shot a quick prayer. When you're faced with a temptation, you can recall scripture and you can shoot a quick prayer to the Lord and say, oh, God, help me in this time of need. Regardless of the origin, whether it be a temptation from Satan, as we've defined, or a test from God, we can be assured that by God's grace, we can be delivered and not defeated. Listen to what the Bible says. James 1, 2 through 4, as we read. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into variegated, is the word, various trials, multicolored, multi-types of trials. If I get that right, God is saying when you have a trial, you should say, great, God's working in my life. We should have joy, he says. My brother, count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of trials, various kinds of trials, knowing that the testing, there it is again, of your faith produces patience and let patience have its perfect work. And when you are perfect and complete or mature, you will lack nothing. When we have a trial, we're saying, God, I recognize that you're in charge. You don't allow Satan To bring anything into my life if it's a temptation or if it's a test from you, you don't bring anything into my life except you give me the ability to overcome it because you're growing me. And so I rejoice that you're working on my character and growing my Christian walk. We know God's gracious enablement is only a prayer away. I'll close with this verse Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly, and the word there is confidently not like we are brash and break into God's throne room and say, I need this. It's the idea that we're his children and we can come confidently because he wants to meet our needs. Let us therefore come confidently to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we got a need, we're being tested or tempted, whichever one. We can come to God and say, God, I need grace. I need mercy, mercy. This is my time of need. Help me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your promises. Thank you that some verses are so concise, so helpful, that they're just a doctrine almost wrapped up in in just a few phrases. And we cling to them. We claim them. Uh, We know they're true. And we want them to be helpful at these pivotal points in our life of temptation when we're critically faced with decisions that can alter our future for good or for evil. So, Lord, we ask for your constant help with our need because we're a people that live in a world of temptations. And on top of that, we know that you send us trials as well to grow us. So we look to you. We claim your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I encourage you, if you're not sure about your eternal destiny, not sure if you're really in Christ, the Bible says, allow us to help you. Allow us to help you settle that most important question. Or if you're struggling with a life-dominating sin that is controlling you, allow us to help you with that area too. Get you into some discipleship or scripture memory that will help you overcome that as God's child.